many of us emphasize when we go into church, how many of us go in there to say thank you, unless it's such an overwhelming gift that we've received. Even in the medical community, suffering is looked upon, death is looked upon as a failure in the part of the medical community. That's the big enemy. Mm -hmm. And suffering is right next to it, you know. Uniting your suffering with the suffering of Jesus gives it a redemptive value. And I suppose you have to have faith to believe that. But it sure changes the whole process of undergoing a very difficult time. Here's your host. Good evening and welcome. I'm Tony Miller with KCDM and I'll be your host for the show this evening. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Pastor's Perspective. We appreciate you lending us your ear for an hour. We are in the 27th week of Ordinary Time, and we will be previewing the Gospel of Luke for the 28th Sunday of Ordinary Time. October is Respect for Life Month, and since we didn't finish our discussion last week, we'll continue our discussion about the sanctity of life from conception to natural death and how that impacts us. Uh, welcome to the posse tonight. We have uh, Father Mike. Hello. And Father Marty. Hey, everybody. And Father James. Hello, everyone. And Father Dennis is on vacation and a mission. A retreat. A retreat. We well, think. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he has crossed the river into the unknown. Uh, okay. So Father Dennis's seat is absent tonight. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. We're glad you're here. Uh, in our news and notes tonight, let's start off with the... Uh, Eucharistic uh, adoration procession from St. John's to St. Paul's with the Notre Dame students. How'd that go? It went fantastic. So today we had approximately 290 students along with 15 to 20 staff members and then a handful of parishioners that joined us on a Eucharistic procession walk from St. John's to St. Paul's. So it was an opportunity for us in this Eucharistic revival to come and center our lives around the Eucharist, but then also to take Christ out into the streets. It was a wonderful, powerful experience for many of our youth. Um, just being able to process and really, you know, kind of take in, you know, following Christ in an actual physical way. And you didn't get lost? We didn't get lost, but the best part of all, Father Phillips. What was that? Is that the monstrance never dropped. Oh, you never dropped, Jesus. It never dropped. We should but I had my cane ready in case it did. <laughs> so, so the story with that was, is so when we kicked off, kicked off the Eucharistic revival for the diocese, we headed up at the cathedral where we were going to process down to St. Anthony's. Well, unfortunately, on the journey, the first altar we stopped at right outside the cathedral doors, well, the Holy Spirit was really coming out of the cathedral or maybe around the cathedral, and it tipped Jesus over and off the altar. <laughs> oh, no. Jesus took his first fall. Well, so as we were journeying, Father Dennis was going to carry the monster. So before it was his turn, Father Marty looks over at him and says... If you drop Jesus, I'm hitting you with my cane. <laughs> so Father Dennis takes the monstrance and he starts walking. Well, due to Jesus' first fall, Jesus was not entirely securely in the monstrance. Oh, no. And unfortunately for Father Dennis, Jesus came out and fell for the second time. 
And I think the women of Jerusalem and Davenport were weeping. Yes. But nobody wiped Jesus' face. This was supposed, supposed to be a way of the cross. So thankfully today he did not fall at all. We didn't get stopped by a train. It was a good day. Good deal. And I want to give a thanks uh, shout out to, um, especially on this feast day of St. Michael when we're taping, um, to the police who helped us out today. Thank you so much for your help. I also say a big shout out to our religion teachers, Jennifer Baxter and Maria Roth. Yes. For all the time that they did, just kind of playing through it, work with the students, help them to understand, you know, what is this that we're going to do so that the kids can enter more fully into the experience. Very good. Wonderful experience for them. And let's talk about the Engaging Cajun, who's coming in October for our uh, our, our pastoral mission. Yeah, so uh, uh, Monday, October 17th through the 19th, the Engaging Cajun, Mike Patton, will be here. And did I pronounce that right? I think it's Patan. Patan, okay, my bad. Um, but he's going to be here for a three-day mission on the themes um, Blessed, Broken, and Sent. Um, he is really engaging. He is, he is really a powerful speaker. We're going to start each night with food and then come over to the church at Saints Mary and Patrick for about 15 minutes of, of music, and then he will speak for an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, he's dear to my heart. Dear to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> who, who preaches longer? Father Phillips? Or Mike Patan. <laughs> there we go. But um, no, I, I really am excited for this. And I hope that um, the good news is he has given permission for us to live stream as well, too. So maybe there's some people listening that can't get out and um, seen. So join us on the live stream. But also, if you can be there in person, it is just wonderful. All right. Very good. Hopefully between now and then we can get the network reliable over there. The wireless has been a little fidgety, so I'm trying to get that fixed. Well, we'll pray to uh, St. Gabriel, whose feast day is also today because he is the patron of telecommunications. Well, there we go. Wonderful. I'm praying to the wrong guy. That's what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I we Michaels, oh, we Michaels don't know much about oh, the feast day, by the way. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. I, I always say the same prayer to St. Anthony all the time. Do you? Uh, Anthony, Anthony, please come around. I've lost my mind and it must be found. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I got put up with? You know, you poor thing. <laughs> we haven't even started and I've lost control. <laughs> and Father Marty, you also wanted to talk about the Upon This Rock campaign. Yes, um, we're going to kick it off the weekend of October 8-9. So the, the gospel that we're going to be talking about. But um, this is a diocesan capital campaign. We're hoping as a diocese to raise $28 million with 60% going to um, priest aid and retirement, 20% for vocations, and then 20% comes back um, to the parish. And so um, one of the people sitting around the table tonight is a Burlington native, Father Mike. I am. And, um, and so this is for our priest. And I read one of the case statements that another pastor said, he goes, it's a little... Um, uneasy for him to talk about a campaign that's going to help him, not just now, but also in the future. But we do this because because of our priest, um, not past, present, and future. Very good. All right. Uh, any other news that we need to squeeze in here? The Cardinals own the Central. I heard that. Okay. Just thought I'd throw that out. Being a Cub fan, I don't know that that thrills me, but that's okay. <laughs> well, Jesus loves you again. Okay. <laughs> All right. Wow. He's even throwing darts at you tonight, Tony. <laughs> I'm a big target. I'm a big target. 
Okay. Uh, Father Marty, you have an opening prayer for us I to do. get us started? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father and maker of all, you adorn all creation with splendor and beauty and fashion human lives in your image and likeness. Awaken in every heart reverence for the work of your hands and renew among your people a readiness to nurture and sustain your precious gift of life through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Marty. You're very welcome. All right, tonight the posse will discuss Luke's gospel for the 28th Sunday of Ordinary Time, and that's chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Uh, in this reading, Jesus heals 10 lepers who beg for pity, but only one, a Samaritan, this foreigner, as Jesus refers to him, returned to thank God. And Father Mike, you have the uh, reading tonight? I'd be happy to do so. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering the village, 10 lepers met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them, realizing that he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? And then he said to him, Stand up and go your way, for your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Father Mike. It seems like Jesus' entire life was spent journeying to Jerusalem, wasn't it? We, we start out with this one again. They're still journeying to Jerusalem. Weren't the Samaritans enemies of the Jews, or at least outcasts? What was a Samaritan doing with the nine other lepers? Were they just hanging out, and, and they, since they're all lepers, they don't really pay that much attention to the religion? Or what, what, what do we know about that? Well, as a leper, you're going to be an outsider. You're going to be forced from the community. There's that fear that you could infect and make others unclean. So you've been kicked out of the town. So if you're kicked out of the town, well... You potentially could form a community with other lepers, whether they be Samaritans, Gentiles, Jews, whatever they might be, which would explain why there's one, you know, an outsider with the regular posse. The separations that uh, happen in normal society kind of break down when you get into the leper community. To an extent, I would argue, just because as a leper, you've been kicked from the main community. Interesting. They had to have had some faith when they encountered Jesus, didn't they? They had to believe Jesus could heal them before they asked, mm -hmm. right? I think they were grasping for anything that would help them. Leprosy is such a terrible disease. You know, so terrible that the non-lepers didn't want to have anything to do with the lepers. Here Jesus comes along with his reputation of being a healer of soul, not of souls so much then as, as, as bodies. And uh, so they were grasping, I wouldn't say grasping at straws, but from our standpoint in the modern era, that's the way we'd look at it. Mm -hmm. I heard a radio show on EWTN. It was a, a, a guy had written a book about the gift of pain. And he was saying that the lepers of that time, the reason that they were the way they were is because the lepers could not feel pain. And so any kind of a disease or burn or anything like that, they couldn't feel it. 
And so it would fester and, and they had those kind of problems. I didn't know that about leprosy. So I, I would think that would make it even a more horrible disease. And the great um, saint who ministered to the lepers um, on Malachi, mm -hmm. uh, Father Damien of Malachi, he would, when he first got there, it was an assignment that, of course, he, he, he really didn't want. I'm not sure anybody would really want that assignment. But he would always refer to, him, to them in their homilies, you lepers. And one night he was bathing his foot in very scorching water fell over his, over his foot, um, I believe, and he didn't feel it. So he realized that he had leprosy. And from then on, it was always we lepers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Jesus sent them back to show themselves to the Pharisees. And as they were walking back, did, did the other nine not realize they had been cleansed? Well, they, they showed themselves to the priest. The priest, okay. Not just the Pharisees. And um, this is the second healing of a leper or lepers that Jesus is going to do in the Gospel of Luke. Because the first time he did it, um, he touched the leper, which would have made Jesus unclean. Okay. And But after he healed him, he says, go show yourselves to the priest. So to be brought back into the community, they had to, they had to be verified by the priest that they were indeed cleansed of their leprosy. And, and they were apparently cleansed as they went, but only the Samaritan turned around and went back. Again, the Samaritan is the one who shows gratitude and thankfulness. What's the significance of that? Well, you got to understand, like, there's a connection in the Old Testament with this story. So if you go to 2 Kings chapter 5, you're, you're going to have that healing, Lucius healing of Naaman, the commander of this force that's kind of taken over the you know, land. Here he is, essentially dealing with an illness. You know, is healed. And what does he do when he comes back? You know, he gives glory to God, but he also falls on his face. Just kind of like this Samaritan, that idea of they're helping to show that Jesus is the new king, the true king. You know, kind of like David was, you know, the king. You know, he was a great king, but there's an even greater king now. So trying to draw that connection with the Old Testament and the New Testament, showing you Christ being that fulfillment. And it's that opportunity for us to kind of see, like, all right, like, this seems really strange. Like you figured, you know, Samaritan, like you're an outsider, like you're not a real Jew, like you're not the purebred Jew, but it's interesting that that's the one that will come back to give thanks. Whereas the true, you know, true blood Jews are more focused on, Hey, we're back in the community. Hey, we're back to good times. Who do you got on your fantasy football team today? <laughs> and the also thing, the thing that hits me is, you know, whenever you're looking at what, how Jesus reacts to anything, you're looking at how God reacts to things because the full revelation of who God is is found through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So how does he react to this leper? Uh, he reacts to him by, or actually reacts to the whole situation by saying we're not, this one, this one Samaritan who's so happy because he's come back again and he's healed. Uh, where are the other nine? You know, the, I, I always was fascinated by that little poetic, poetic uh, pericope, poetic pericope. The, the attitude is gratitude. And that's how the Lord reacts to us. That, that's what he wants more than anything. He wasn't, doesn't want offerings and sacrifice and holocausts. He wants gratitude from us. And he showed it in, in his disappointment that the other nine never came back to say thank you. And we still experience that today, even in the raising of our children. We try to instill in them an attitude of gratitude so that they give thanks to whoever is good to them. 
And, uh, and when they don't, we get really upset, or at least we should. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just a, uh, just a little minimal thing in comparison to God. Uh, gratitude moves the hearts of whoever is, is saying that I'm, I'm thankful to you for whatever you've done for me. It's interesting, like, that the word foreigner that's used here. It's the only time that you will see this Greek word in the New Testament. The foreigner? Mm-hmm. In Greek. In Greek. Yeah, yeah, I don't exactly. I'm not a Greek scholar here. So, so I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to butcher how to actually say it. I'm not even an American scholar. so. <laughs> but it's intriguing. It's the only time it's found in the New Testament. And it's also intriguing that this word was part of the Greek inscription that was placed on the wall in the temple courts beyond which non-Jews could not go on pain of death. And we see that in Numbers chapter 1, verse 51. And it's intriguing with this because it shows that Jesus is overcoming the barrier between Jews and non-Jews and fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, which we see in chapter 56, verse 3, and then 6 and 7. The foreigner joined to the Lord should not say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and foreigners who join themselves to the Lord them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So he's making this connection that Christ comes to save us all, not only for those purebred Jews, but also for the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the Galileans. So it's a foreshadowing of, of opening up heaven to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always find this gospel difficult and I'm gonna and I'm gonna take it a different way I think you know and I and I agree with everything that you guys are saying you know the attitude of gratitude and and everything um here's my thing about the the nine who didn't come back aren't they just doing what Jesus told them to do I was just gonna ask I wondered what happened to the other nine yeah. did they did they remain healed or did they did they, sure they remain healed are we called to just do the very basics of our life that, that's the, but here's the other thing too. And I think there's, there's times we all feel this way. What would have happened if the Samaritan had gone to the priest? Oh, the priest is going to look up. Uh-huh. Chased him up. Yeah. yeah. So uh-huh. the only person really the Samaritan could go back to was Jesus himself. So the Samaritan did go to the priest. The ultimate high priest. Right. They could have gone back to the family. Yeah. I like your point there. I think those nine, those other nine, were just so overwhelmed at their cure that they forgot who gave them the cure. I mean, this happens to us as well, you know. We're just so overwhelmed. When something really good happens to us because of the benefits of another person, you know, we, we're, we're so excited about it that we forget where we got the gift, you know. Yeah. You see, and, and the other thing, too, is, is that we get this again this year, this, this same gospel. Because this is the gospel that's picked for Thanksgiving Day. Oh, okay. You know, so when, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, we're going to preach on this, you know, that, that theme, as you said, Mike, yeah. Father Mike, of, of thankfulness. And, and I think, too, that's a good point. Yeah. I think you're both making good points here that, you know, sometimes we forget who we received the gift from. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot like it's, it's a cutesy story. But, you know, the little girl... Went to her first birthday party and mom handed her the gift and says, now when I come pick you up, make sure you say thank you to the mom who, who invited you. Okay, mom. And she comes out real excited and she jumps into the back seat of the car and mom, first thing mom says is, did you say thank you? Well, no. Young lady, what happened? 
Well, my friend in front of me said, thank you. And she said, oh, don't mention it. So I did it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Like I said, a little kidsy there, but. Out of the mouths of babes. Me, you wonder, like, for us, like, how many of us are going to be like those Jews? Huh? Like, you know, we've had this powerful encounter with God. Like, maybe it's when a low point in our life. And when things are good again, well, eh, I don't really need God right now. Yeah. Like, my life's pretty good. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, look at our own prayer lives. I'll speak for myself rather than you guys. But you know how many when you when you divide your prayers up to into categories, how many put any real emphasis on prayer of thanksgiving rather than prayer of petition or prayer, you know, of asking forgiveness you know. of sins and all that? How many of us emphasize when we go into church? How many of us go in there to say thank you? unless it's such an overwhelming gift that we've received. Another thing that I find, I'm no Greek scholar either. I had two years of Greek and I don't remember one word of it, except for one word, eucharistia, eucharistia. It's a Greek word and it means thanksgiving. And that's the word that we use for mass, the Eucharist. So I think that's, you know, that's almost bone chilling when you think about it in terms of what we're talking about tonight. I just think like you know, Thanksgiving, like how well do we do it in prayer? Like, how many of you know us around the table? How many of our parishioners, you know, take that moment after communion to truly thank God for yeah. this great gift? Like, how many of us think to ourselves, like, all right, well, if I can make it to high meeting here, <laughs> like, ten more minutes, like, hopefully there's not too many more announcements, and I'll make it make it out of the parking lot here just in time. Right. Well, that will give everyone something to think about uh, when we get done with the reading and the homily at mass. Uh, you can all give thanks. So that wraps up our discussion for Sunday's gospel. Uh, if you're just tuning in, we are talking with uh, Father Mike, Father Marty, and Father James, who are taking up the reins tonight in the posse. Thanks for tuning in. We're happy you are with us. If you like what you hear tonight, tell someone about the show. Now we can move on to uh, the next part of the show. This week, in honor of October being Respect for Life Month, the second half of the show will continue our discussion about respecting life from conception to natural death and some of the ways our society has failed to uphold that basic human right. Let's pick up where we left off last week and finish our abortion discussion. And I don't want this to go on a whole long time because we've already done a whole hour on abortion. Um, and I promised everybody the whole thing wouldn't be about abortion when we started. So I want to shift gears just a little bit. Uh, is there a component of respect for life when talking about contraceptives? Many people think that conception does not happen while on contraceptions. So a concern for life is not an issue. It's okay. Is it okay according to church teaching? Because my understanding is that conception does happen and the, the contraceptives in most cases keep it from being fulfilled. Yeah, that, that's part of the problem. I think what Father Marty said last week, if you all remember, in covering the whole issue of life itself, with seamless garment, whatever you want to give the name to, uh, the reason a contraception is, is wrong, is considered unnatural by the church, is because it's our fooling around with the whole process with which life comes into the world. You know, life is when we first begin to, to have life. Contraception, it's, the word contra means against, conception means conception, the beginning of life. So it's the be, being against the beginning of life. So it does have a very definite impact on the whole process of what we're talking about in all the life issues. It's our, it's man's interruption with the natural processes of the human body, uh, in bringing forth a new life into creation. 
So it's basically denying the procreative act. That's right. It's a contradiction, again, contradiction of what the procreative act is supposed to be. It's beginning something that is supposed to end in life, and in the middle of that, stymieing it uh, or, or affecting it in some way that it will not happen. So when, when people talk about contraception, most of the time that discussion falls on the, the women's part of contraception. But what does the church say about men having vasectomies and condoms and that kind of thing? I mean, is, that's, that's just as much contraceptive as the pill, right? Correct. Like if, if you are attempting to limit, you know, that chance, whether it's, you know, through a condom, whether it's through a vasectomy, that idea of the conjugal act needs to be open to the possibility for life. Okay. So if you are eliminating any chance of it, that it would be a sin. The country and the world actually are probably divided 50-50 down the middle on abortion. If you took a poll, my guess would be that Catholics are about the same split, 50-50, 60-40. What do you say to a Catholic who thinks abortion is okay? How do you approach that if you're talking to someone and and it comes up in conversation. What I do is I, I try to take the Jesus method. So I'm going to answer a question with a question. Why? Why do you feel this way? Okay. And then what I try to do is get to the roots of, of where we're coming from. You know, so, um, and then what I try to do is to teach what the church teaches is that all life is sacred. That's what I do. Not everyone wants to listen to that or does listen to that. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things is, um, it goes back to something we said last week, until we have the eyes to see that all life is sacred, a sacred gift from God, then a lot of times we're going to have a discussion that whatever feels best for me is the right thing to do. Right. When it, when it really isn't. I think like you're saying, like a big thing is just like, kind of understanding kind of where they're coming from. Like, all right, you know, like what do they think the church teaches and why do you think the church teaches this? Like, let's have that discussion. Cause most of the time, like if you are going to kind of, you know, try and tell them that abortion is wrong, you know, they're fired up. Emotions are fired on all cylinders. Right. So it's all right. Like, let's talk about this. Like, why do you think the church, you know, it's been here for 2000 years. Why do you think it teaches that, you know, abortion is wrong? Oftentimes you're probably going to get the answer of father. It's an old church. It needs to get with the times. Yeah. Well, there's an advantage to having that long time to sit and be able to think through something. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah. you know, it's interesting. I don't mean to interrupt you, but the whole attitude of being against abortion goes all the way back into pagan times. It's not just something that the Catholic Church made up. Hippocratic oath says, first of all, in healing people, do no harm. And, and it spells out the fact, do no, do no abortion. And so I, I think that's a very important thing. It's an interesting progression when you look at the whole so-called pro-life movement. At first, they tried to say uh, that there is, it isn't a human being. It isn't life. Now science, not the church, but science have proven that it is a human life at the very beginning. Conception takes place at the very beginning of the union of the male and the female cells. And at that very moment... You know, there's a whole new being there, even though you can't see it as we see ourselves today. But you leave it alone. Don't fool around with it, and it will grow, not into a horse or an elephant or a pig, 
you know, that comes later on. But uh, <laughs> it grows into a human being. And so we don't want to fool with that. And even pagan science, I'm not saying science is pagan, but even way back in the times of the pagans, in their understanding of science, they said, do no harm. And so that's the way I explain it to people when they really want to get into it. My wife and I had a miscarriage, our third, our third child, we miscarried. And when that happened, uh, the, I held the baby in my hand and he was about 12 weeks old and fit right in the palm of my hand and had 10 fingers, 10 toes, eyes, nose, mouth. I mean, it was, it was a perfectly formed little human being. That's usually the story I tell when I run into that with somebody. When you think about the potential of all the babies that have been aborted since 1973, what's 60 to 70 million babies uh, who were never born, Think of the contributions they might have made to the world. It was a there. I hope I didn't tell this last week, and if I did, I apologize. But there was a. Uh, this is when Bill Clinton was president, and um, Hillary Clinton got to meet Mother Teresa, mm-hmm. and Hillary said, "You know, well, why hasn't God given us a cure for cancer yet?" And Mother Teresa's response was, "How do we know He didn't, and we didn't abort?" that child. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and I just think that, you know, there's so many, you know, contributions that could have been made, just lives enriched, mm-hmm. um, lives that never had a chance. And, and that's the, and that's the sad part. It, it really is a tragedy for the entire world. And it's not just America. It's, it's all over the world. So, okay, well, let's, um, let's move on. We've got several other topics to do here. We're going to jump out of the frying pan and into the fire and move on to the death penalty. Ouch. So let's start with what is the church's official teaching on the death penalty? I know, uh, was it Pope Francis that made a comment on an airplane uh, coming back from somewhere that stirred the the whole death? The catechism. Yeah. He updated the catechism. I'll read the old, then we'll go with the new. Okay. Do you have the new? No, but I can look at the new. Okay. But um, 2267, assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined, the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty if this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. Okay. Okay. If, however, non-lethal means are sufficient to defend and protect people's safety from the aggressor, authority will limit itself to such means, as these are more in keeping with the concrete conditions of the common good and more in conformity with the dignity of the human person. So there was, um, you know, under uh, St. John Paul II, you know, there was a, you know, because people would quote the catechism that, the church accepts the death penalty. You got to read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for um, him, it was um, a last resort, right? You know, and um, and I think that's something that we definitely have to keep in mind. And even even John Paul II would make a, a proviso when people would say that to him, uh, in that he'd say that it was it would be an extremely rare situation where what you just read would not be in effect an extremely rare situation so that the death penalty could be enacted. Uh, he called it a, a, 
Well, he did. He didn't just say he was aware. He used a stronger word, and it escapes me now. But well, here it is. Without definitely taking away from him the possibility of redeeming himself, right. the cases in which the execution of the offender is an absolute necessity are very rare, if not practically non-existent. That's what. That's what I was trying to get at. Right. Yeah, because the um, you know when you think about making an error where you have an innocent person on death row. I mean, that alone, it, it talks in there about the guilt has been proven and, you know, it's it, it's identified and everything beyond a doubt. But we know that errors do get made. So as far as I'm concerned, that alone should be reason enough that the death penalty should not be used. But, you know, we're dealing here with human emotion. And when you have a case where somebody goes into a school with a, with a gun and shoots up little five and six and seven and eight-year-old kids... The, the common response to that among people is kill him, you know, get rid of him, you know, look at this horrible thing. Or you have a, a rapist who's going around raping young girls. The human reaction to that, the emotion to that, is to destroy the person. I go back to the scriptures, Father, uh, Father James was talking about the Old Testament earlier, you know. In the Old Testament it says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So when we have, even though, even though it might seem that justice is on our side in wanting to end the life of this, this monster, this demon, who's done such terrible evil, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And it's not up to us to take into our own hands uh, the role that God himself will take. So here's the update that Pope Francis did, May 11th, 2018. So it's 2267 in the Catechism. Recourse to the death penalty on the part of legitimate authority following a fair trial was long considered an appropriate response to the gravity of certain crimes and an acceptable, albeit extreme, means of safeguarding the common good. Today, however, there is an increasing awareness that the dignity of the person is not lost even after the commission of very serious crimes. In addition, a new understanding has emerged of the significance of penal sanctions imposed by the state. Lastly, more effective systems of detention have been developed, which ensure the due protection of citizens, but at the same time, do not definitively deprive the guilty of the possibility of redemption. Consequently, the Church teaches, in the light of the Gospel, that the death penalty is inadmissible, because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person, and she works with determination for its ab- ab- abolition. 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 Yeah, that word. <laughs> Worldwide. That's a good. You know, isn't it interesting? I sit here and listen to Father James read that, and I, I, I'm just amazed at how, how simple, how logical, how calm those words are in the face of the human emotion of vengeance. I think if we as priests could preach that in the same way that he just read it, maybe without the big words, that's that's not his fault. That's the the way they have to, they they want words that say exactly what they want to say. But uh, if we could just preach that, maybe people wouldn't be so much in favor of the death penalty. Uh, We were talking before we went on the air, when we go from abortion to the death penalty, it's like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. And, um, it is, because most people, you, you'll split your congregation right down the middle pretty much about the death penalty, simply because of the human emotion about against the people who perpetrate such horrible, horrible crimes. That's understandable. 
but it's not the way that Christ would act. I think so many people will look at it and say, well, Father, it says in Scripture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If mm-hmm. you want to go out and kill, you know your punishment. As Tevye on Fiddler on the Roof says, that leaves us all blind and toothless. So, <laughs> um. Well, and, and, and two other, I think there's an important point that we have to make here, and then a little bit of a, an example, is that as a society and as a person, we have the right to protect ourselves against an unjust aggressor. Okay. Now there are, there are different ways that we can protect ourselves. And I think, you know, what, what you read, Father James, you know, we have ways now that we can protect the common good without putting someone to death. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the other thing too, I'm reminded, um, as we were talking about this subject, um, St. Maria Goretti, mm-hmm. you know, um, I had the honor of, of having mass in the place where she was martyred. You know, because she had an unjust aggressor mm-hmm. that wanted to have his way with her. Well, when she said no, he killed her mm-hmm. and she became a martyr for the faith. Well, um, she was canonized to saint in 1950. Her mother was still alive. Her mother was there. Well, right. guess who sat next to, to her to her mother? The, the person right. who took her life. Yeah. yeah, Unbelievable. Because he converted. And that's the other thing with the death penalty is there's no, then there's no chance for conversion there. That's right. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read more on that, read um, from Sister oh, Prajan, Prajan, Prajan. She works with um, inmates on death row. I wanted to say Katie, and I know that's not right. This is a nun who, who works and, and everything. And so just... I've always, one of my defenses for being against the death penalty is that spending your entire, the rest of your life in prison seems like it would be a much more horrible punishment than death. So I, I think there are some things that could be worse than death. Okay, let's move on to euthanasia. Euthanasia is the practice of intentionally ending life to relieve pain and suffering. And when I was uh, doing research for the show, I was shocked at the number of articles I found on the internet for the pros and cons of euthanasia. Mm-hmm. And some of the articles went up to 17, 18 pros for euthanasia. Sure. I was just flabbergasted. Sure. Pros to euthanasia? Yeah. Really? No one wants to suffer, let alone see a loved one suffer. Uh, You always hear about offering up our suffering. What does that mean? There are a couple of things here. Number one, I'm I'm not as shocked or as surprised as you are about the fact that euthanasia has such a favorable response in our culture today. It's just like Father Marty and Father James were saying, we've lost our respect for all of life. And if if you lose your respect for life or if it is significantly diminished, then what's wrong with ending life if you've got a a terminal disease or you're suffering terribly? Um, What's wrong with that? Even in the medical community, suffering is looked upon, death is looked upon as a failure in the part of the medical community. That's the big enemy. Mm -hmm. And suffering is right next to it. You know, I'm going to try to reduce, well, sure, of course you should try to reduce suffering as much as you possibly can. But suffering has a purpose in the Christian way of life. And Jesus himself taught us that. So there, there is such a thing as offering up, not just offering up your sufferings in the sense of, well, grin and bear it, you know, but um, uniting your suffering with the suffering of Jesus gives it a redemptive value. And I suppose you have to have faith to believe that. But it sure changes the whole process of undergoing a very difficult time. Because it meaning? Because Jesus in redemptive suffering, as I understand it, is you're, you're uniting your suffering to Jesus' suffering, Jesus can bring good out of that. Absolutely. 
you, you can help Jesus save the world? Is that? You're able to unite kind of, yourself more closely, like to Christ. You're able to strengthen that relationship with that of Christ on the cross. And I think so often, so in the world today, it's like we look at pain, we look at suffering as, you know, oh my gosh, like you don't want that. Like think of just all these, you know, painkillers, oxycodone, all these things that people get hooked on to, to avoid pain, to avoid suffering. You know, we buy all these fancy little toys to try and avoid, you know, a pain or suffering, you know, or suffering that we have in our hearts. But we know that there's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering on the life of being a Christian. You know, that's why we have the crucified Christ on the cross. Because we've got to go through the cross to get to the resurrection. We can't skip the suffering and get there. And, and I want to talk about two things here. Is, um, you know, my dad, for the last two weeks of his life, uh, last 12 days, um, was in hospice care. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, the, as the family, we were there every day. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching my dad not being able to get comfortable um, and a few other things now, um, looking back. And, and I go back to a simple prayer that I found sitting with my dad. Jesus, I don't always understand you, but I trust in you. We're not going to understand suffering, but I'm going to trust that Jesus is going to make some good out of this. And I'm going to go a little bit personal because, you know, right now, um, you know, I've had two people ask me tonight, you know, well, how are you feeling? I said, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm a little sore from a six-tenth of a mile walk today. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully you're not sore tomorrow for the golf game. <laughs> hey, we'll get loosened up. You know, but, you know, and, and most everybody knows who's listening knows that, you know, I've been diagnosed with cancer and my cancer has um, spread into my bones, which I understand can be very painful um, when it progresses. I'm going to look at that as something that I can hopefully in patience, in love, give to the Lord and for his church to unite it with, with him. And, and don't get me wrong. You know, one of the things that the church teaches is, is that, we can, um, that we can be comfortable, but it doesn't mean that we just, I'm not going to fly to a state that I can do this and just say, uh, I'm done. Just, you know, take, take, it, take me now. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, and I think that's important because, and, and, and the other thing too is that I just want to read something here. It says the Catholic Church believes that patients should be kept as free from pain as possible until they die a natural death with dignity. Right. So we want to be able to have um, dignity. So we do not promote preserving physical life at all cost, but instead we teach that patients and families should vo- focus on the virtues of fidelity, compassion, and dignity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that Hospice House gave my dad, that he had that dignity, and he has family around him. Yeah. And that's one of the things my dad, when I was talking to him while he was in his last month or two, one of the questions he asked me one day was, why do I have to suffer like this? I didn't have a real good answer for him at the time. But uh, as time went on, and one of the things I told him right before he died was that the example that he set for his children and grandchildren 
of how to suffer and to suffer with dignity and to suffer quietly. And, you know, um, and he was in hospice for the last couple of weeks of his life sure. too. And they kept him comfortable and everything. You know, we, we I learned a lot from him about how to die. Kind of like um, John Paul II, they said about him uh, when he died that, that he set a very good example of how to die. And that's important for your the kids and the grandkids, especially the grandkids. I think my, my kids learned a lot from that too, because we're all going to be there one day. And I think even if you're not at the, what they call extremists, you know, at the very end where, the, where there is a great deal of suffering and all the rest of that, I, I don't want to embarrass Father Marty, but his own example, Father Marty's own example of suffering and, and, and of being aware in the psychological applications of knowing that you have cancer, um, is an unbelievable testament to faith, Marty. It's just, and it has great effect on the people. We, we can get up every Sunday and preach and, you know, uh, but but when you see somebody who's actually going through the stuff that we talk about and doing it with courage and with humor and with conviction and all the rest of that, that is a great, great message. And you do that. You do that so well. So Now, I look at myself. I don't have cancer. I don't have anything significantly wrong with me. I've got a bad heart. I mean, i got a heart that isn't as good as it could be. But um, I'm not a very good sufferer. I don't suffer. <laughs> I don't suffer with joy. I don't suffer with, oh boy, I get to suffer. Isn't this great? I'm not, I'm not very good. In fact, when I, when I was stationed here in Burlington and I was at Notre Dame and I'd have the flu or I'd have a cold and I decided not to go in, I'd go home. My mom was still alive and I'd go home and, and she'd take care of me just like she did when I was 10. And she came into the bedroom one day when I was having a bad case of the flu and my stomach was upset and I was just, I was just not happy at all. And she had had enough, I think, of me. And she sat down on the bed and she said, Michael, she said, I want to talk to you. And I said, oh, mother, I don't want to talk to anybody. I feel miserable. Everything's wrong. It's all, everybody's against me. And she said, shut up. Now, not too often, <laughs> not too often do priests are told to shut up. But anyway, she said, I want to tell you something. Everybody tells me that you, you are such a good priest and you have such a wonderful bedside manner, she said. But I want to tell you that when you're in the bed suffering, she said, you're just no good at all. <laughs> so uh, that really snapped me out of my poor little, poor little uh, me guy, you know. So, so I really appreciate somebody who can suffer and, and really make use of that because so, it's a great witness to all of us. We're talking about suffering. All I can think of is, you know, is we all encounter our sufferings for for some of us, we might encounter sufferings when we see a, a priest walk down the aisle and think, oh, no, this is going to be a long homily. <laughs> and they say, well, oh, <laughs> Cancel the breakfast reservations. We're I not going to make it in time. I try not to make other people suffer, James. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I think euthanasia is a reflection, like we've been talking about, that we just don't value life today. Um, you know, they, the people will say about the elderly, uh, disabled, the handicapped that, oh, they, they don't contribute to society anymore. Um, so we just we don't need to put any more resources into it. We should just get rid of them. Those kind of people, the elderly, the disabled, the handicapped offer so much in lessons, love and everything else for us that to say that they don't contribute is just ridiculous. See, and I had, um, I'll give you a couple of stories about that. And I visited somebody in the hospital today, you know, um, they brought in because of heart, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and I, I came into the room 
And the patient just lit up when I sat down next to her. And the first thing that, that she said was, it wasn't about, oh, Father, I'm feeling so awful and da 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 da. Father Marty, how are you feeling? And I'm like, you're the one that's in the ER, not me. <laughs> I'm pretty good. You know, um, if you asked me that three, three or four months ago when they shut the door and said, you got COVID, <laughs> you know. But, um, but the other thing, too, there is that I have a, I have a nephew. Um, that's had multiple health issues. Mm-hmm. He's had surgery on his back. He's had two heart valve replacement surgeries. He was in Iowa City the day after he was born. Um, we've almost lost him. And um, I want to trade, you know, he's in his mid to upper 30s now. I, want, I don't know what day I would trade being around him. Except when he calls me when Duke beats North Carolina to rub it in. But other than that, um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, and it's it's just the the joy, you know, that he that he brings to our family. And like this this lady today, you know, just the joy, you know, that she brings into my life. And the one thing that I think really that we underestimate um, what our elderly can do is the power of prayer. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because, you know, you think, well, I'm just useless, Father. Well, have you prayed for this, this? I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, so, yeah. And I think a lot of them, like, that. you know, look at the elderly, the disabled, and kind of like, well, they're not productive members of society. Like, for them, like, they've lost the real meaning of, you know, what it means to live your life. Like, they think of it more as, like, a business. Like, you're a cog in the machine. Well, guess what? Like, at some time, your body's going to start to slow down. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be one of them. Will your tune change at that point? Yeah. Sure. Are, are euthanasia and suicide different? Does the church make a distinction between the two of them? I mean, do, do we have the right to die when and how we want? No. So we have to let God be God. And one of the things that our community, I think, right now um, is suffering a lot from is suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had, you know, I can think of at least three to four, you know, that's affected the parish or our school in this, in the last couple months. And, um, euthanasia is someone else doing the job for you. Suicide is taking your own life. Right. And sometimes I think now we understand psychological so much better. Sure. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, because at one time, you know, we couldn't even allow a funeral or burial in a Catholic cemetery if you took your own life. Well, now we see that it is, you know, a psychological illness, emotional, um, something like that. And um, the darkness just gets to be so much. Mm-hmm. You also argue, like, with euthanasia, though, like, ultimately it's going to come down to either the patient or their family on mm-hmm. whether or not they want to speed that process up. Well, I was just going to ask us, you know, as sons and daughters... How do we know when to push for treatment and, and when it's acceptable from a church perspective to end treatment? Does, does the church have, I don't know, guidelines or, or something to follow that w- to help people make those decisions? Because with both of my parents, I, you know, we, we had to make those decisions. And I think a lot of it is you, you talk to the person, hopefully, before that time comes. I'll use myself as an example, okay? Um, my oncologist... Um, I told my my new oncologist this, that I don't want, you know, well, we have this drug. There's a one in 10,000 chance that it might work. 
and side effects are A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z, A, A, B, Bs. You get the drift. Yeah. Don't take if you're allergic to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, for me, I think there comes a time where we let God be God. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you talk to doctors. I think you talk to people that you trust um, to make that decision that, hey, it's time for God to be God. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's like, being able to have that conversation with your doctor, like understanding, like what are the benefits of continuing this treatment? Are we, are we just prolonging death? What, you know, what's kind of the benefit? Is this a small little sliver that's going to give mom or dad an extra, you know, two weeks of life? Is this little small, anybody benefit going to have these large challenges, these large, you know, pain, suffering. So a lot of it's going to be talked with that medical team and understand like, what is the success of this treatment? Like, or is it going to be something where it's going to break the bank? Like, you know, where it's going to cause you to go bankrupt. Like, well, at that point, like, you know, finding that right kind of balancing act and with ethics itself, because there's not exactly a hundred percent black and white. There's a little bit of gray in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, with both of my parents, it came down to quality of life. If, if, like you said, if there's, you know, 65 different uh, side effects to a medicine that'll get you another week or two, or, you could be without it and die a little earlier, but be comfortable and have a decent quality of life. That's what it came down to with my folks was uh, deciding if it was worth it or not. We're just about out of time. Let's wrap it up here and talk a little bit about how we can make sure that when mothers do choose life, we're there for them to make sure that they don't regret their decisions. Are there ministries in the church geared toward helping mothers faced with these decisions? There are, and that's something I think that we fail a little bit at. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we talked about the law change last week. You know, we're going to have to step up our game now, where we're going to have to offer mothers support. And I think there's a wide range of issues that go into that as well, too, um, which we won't talk about tonight. But I think we need to step up our game and, and support the mothers now um, who bring that, that child to term. Absolutely. Birthright has always been very effective and very, very helpful to mothers from the very beginning when a woman comes before she even gives birth, all the way through the pregnancy and through the birth process and then afterwards as well. So I always recommend that people give more attention and support to birthright. And we do have an active birthright chapter here in Burlington. Very much so. so. Very much so. Uh, if you need that kind of assistant, reach out to them. Can I tell you a great story from our birthright? Okay. So um, this is a few years ago where one of our volunteers at Birthright got an invitation to the Burlington High School graduation from someone that she didn't even know. Okay. She's like, why am I, you know, why did I get invited, but I'm going to go. And it happened to be the valedictorian of the class who in her speech says, I'm sitting here today because of a volunteer from Birthright Uh because my mother went in 18 years ago and wanted to end the pregnancy. But this woman walked with my mom, and here I am. Today. She was there. Oh, how she wonderful! Was there. Wonderful. That's that's a that's, that's really a miracle. Yeah, it is. Well, that is an excellent way to stop uh, end the show this evening. Um, Father James, do you have a, a closing blessing for us? I do. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to come together. To discuss the dignity of human life, the precious gift that you have given us. 
we pray for all those out there that are going through tough times, suffering. Maybe it's with a, a family member who's entering hospice or at the end of the life, or maybe a daughter, a mother who's having challenging pregnancies. We pray that you are walking with them by their side, and we pray that the Blessed Virgin Mary will wrap her mantle around them and guide them to you. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father James. Well, once again, we have run out of time. It seems like the show has lasted for a week. No, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about the sanctity of life is never an easy discussion that is usually made more difficult in our polarized country these days. Pastor's perspective for next week, the 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time, we will journey through Luke's Gospel with chapter 18, and we will also be talking about Holy Days of Obligation, including solemnities, feasts, and memorials. Oh, my. Until next week, (laughs) remember God loves you and has a plan for your life. Jesus Christ died to save everyone, so go forth sharing your story and making disciples. If you have fallen away from the Catholic Church, we invite you to come back to Mass. Consider this a personal invitation. We'd love to see you again. I'd like to thank the priests tonight, Father James. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Father Marty. You betcha. And Father Mike. Thank you. I appreciate all of your input during our life discussion. I pray that people, when faced with life-altering decisions, will reach out to you for help and will always choose life. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again next week on the radio. Listen on the website at kcdmradio.org or go to tunein.com and listen on the podcast. As we close the show, I want to reflect on life through some quotes I found while preparing for the show. Albert Einstein once said, Life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. Lou Holtz said, Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Angela Schwint was quoted as saying, While we try to teach our children all about life, our children teach us what life is all about. And then there's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life from Monty Python. (laughs) Robert Brault said, Enjoy the little things in life, for one day you may look back and realize they were the big things. And I'll close with this one. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's John 15, 13. Please join us again next week. Thanks for listening and good night. You can hear Pastor's Perspective every evening at 9 o'clock after the rosary on KCDM. You can also pick up the show at 5 p.m. on Saturdays and 2 p.m. on Sundays. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. 